This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I'm Joel Hilliker. Today marks 33 years since the beginning of the Philadelphia Church of God, the parent organization of Trumpet Radio and the Trumpet Magazine. 33 years ago that our editor-in-chief had the courage to stand up for the truth. The story of how this church started is very inspiring. You can read about it in our free book, Raising the Ruins, by Stephen Flurry. But if you've been listening to the Trumpet Daily, you know we've been drawing these parallels between what happened in the Church of God three decades ago and what is happening in the United States today. There was a strong current of lies turning things upside down and saying that those who were holding fast the truth were extremists. There was gaslighting and bullying and intimidation. There was also a lot of cowardice and giving in and giving up, people going along with what they were told to do, even when it was clear that it was wrong, that it was deceitful. A lot of people who seemed strong were actually exposed for being quite weak. But on December 7th, 1989, Gerald Flurry took a stand for the truth. He lost his job. He gave up pretty much everything, physically speaking, but he had the truth. He remained faithful to what he knew to be right. And he took the consequences for that. It's inspiring history to look back on, especially with what we see happening more and more in America today. I'll talk about this in our second segment on the program. I'm also going to give a good chunk of the program today. We could call it an extended last word to a related subject. We'll look at a wonderful aspect of God's character one that we really need to emulate in our own lives. That is the fact that God is no respecter of persons. That's recorded in Scripture in a few places. Do you know what that means, no respecter of persons? It means that God is a God of true justice, and everyone is important in his eyes. He doesn't favor one person or one group of people over any others. He doesn't judge different people by different standards. He shows no favoritism, no partiality. I'll explain to you why this is so important and so worthy of emulation. We're going to start, though, by talking about finches. This is an endangered bird that has been making a comeback. A recent report shows that they are breeding again. And why is this important? Well, these finches actually played a prominent role in Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection which underpins evolutionary thinking that dominates scientific and academic thought today. But a recent discovery shows how Darwin got it wrong regarding these birds. To talk about this, we have here in the studio trumpet writer Andrew Miller. Hello, Andrew. Hello. So tell us briefly about these birds and how they're making a comeback. Yeah, that is actually uh, one of the few instances we can talk on this program about some some good news uh, happening uh, in the world. And in particular, it's the mangrove finches in the Galapagos Islands off the western coast of South America that are making a comeback. They've been endangered since the year 2000. Um, Their populations had been declining for quite a bit before then. Uh, And they just found this summer 12 breeding pairs uh, spread throughout the, the mangroves 
uh, stands off the coast of the Galapagos Islands. Now, the the mangrove finch is actually only one of 15 varieties of finches spread across the Galapagos. Some of the other ones are doing much better. Uh, the ones, especially the ones with the with some of the bigger beaks that they can eat bigger seeds. The the mangrove finch has actually one of the smallest beaks of all the, the finches in the Galapagos. It doesn't eat much seeds, uh, but focuses more on like flies, insects, uh, larvae, and for a variety of uh, reasons, have been um, having declining populations for quite a while now. Hmm. Uh, but the uh, Kind of the interesting thing was like when you're looking at you're looking at mangrove finches is these these fifteen these fifteen varieties of finches are are what some people call like icons of evolution. It's it's one of the things that evolutionists go to right off the bat to try to prove their their theory because they were they were the species that got Darwin thinking about evolution back in 1835. He got on the ship the Beagle uh, as a staunch creationist. Uh, he had some disagreements with the Anglican Church over doctrines of heaven and hell, but still believed that God had created the universe. And it wasn't until he got to the Galapagos and started looking at these finches that kind of the idea uh, of Darwinian evolution started to formulate in Darwin's mind. He noticed that there were the different parts of the island had, like I said, some parts had more flies, some parts had more insects, some parts had more seeds. Uh, and each uh, finch in each part of the island had a beak that was just perfect for whatever the predominant food source in its locale was. And uh, he'd assumed that all these finches probably came from a common ancestor who flew over from mainland South America and then must have diverged sensed getting on the island uh and then kind of <laughs> you take extrapolations to their utmost extremes and figures like okay well if the beak keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger he's like if that if that process can continue indefinitely then maybe all finches all birds all <laughs> vertebrates all animals came from a common ancestor and that's really kind of what got the evolutionary theory uh got his thinking rolling on that which is uh interesting now because now that these finches are coming back there have been some uh there have been some new studies that show kind of just how wrong he got that okay so uh just to make sure that i understand he's saying if you you see these different birds in different parts of the islands it's basically they're responding over a period of generations to what they have available to to eat and so so the the natural selection idea is that the bird with the wrong size or wrong shaped beak isn't going to survive whereas if there are these small genetic mutations that enable them to get more bugs then they're going to be able to survive and propagate. Yes, yeah. Darwin, one of his successors, Herbert Spencer, called the, called his theory "survival of the fittest." The, if you live in a spot where um, the seeds are big, the finches with the big beaks do well. The finches with the small beaks buy out, die out. Survival of the fittest. Uh, you change over generations. I, Darwin didn't actually know anything about genetics yet, so he didn't know <laughs> exactly why. Mm -hmm. one animal inherited a characteristic from its parents, but he could see that they did and that just kind of extrapolating out generation after generation wondered like, well, how far does that go? 
Okay, so and this really is a fundamental tenet of evolutionary thinking, this this idea that essentially critters are responding to environmental conditions in ways that that guarantee or that that increase their chances of survival and that this produces change from basically within a species or maybe even jumping species. Yes. Okay. So, uh you you mentioned that there's a scientific breakthrough recently that that uh, undermines that idea. Yeah, well, when there's, when there's been a breakthrough even before this breakthrough, because like you had really had a big problem when they first discussed for Darwinism, big problem for Darwinism, when you first discovered genetics and you started realizing, okay, well, there are these complex genes that that control what your your beak shape is, mm-hmm. and so. It's like that, that, that gene for a beak shape has to exist. It's like even even if you want to play devil's advocate here and, and give Darwin the benefit of doubt this, that, that this natural selection actually occurs, nature can only accept, select for genes that already exist. Like I said, the idea that like random mutations are just going to create a, a gene for a new beak shape is <laughs> about as likely as... Uh, monkey writing war and peace by banging on a on a typewriter but this new study actually goes even a little bit further than that and they're finding that actually um they're they're looking at these different types of finches and finding that there's not actually a lot of genetic difference between them uh and they're finding it's actually more of a an epigenetic process epi means above or like above genetics uh in that like when (laughs) a finch is eating uh like a mother finch is eating when it's having eggs. Uh, there, there's, they call it DNA methylation, where there's certain processes there that can actually switch existing genes on or off within the egg. Uh, and this new study in, in 2017 shows that a lot of this is like finding that most of these 15 varieties of finches have very similar beak genetics. It's just whether the genes being expressed or not. And that's a function of diet in a lot of cases. I guess to make that make more sense, they found uh, a, a related study uh, a few years back where uh, after World War II, um, there were severe food shortages in Germany uh, for a few years. And they found that like a lot of the babies who were born during those years ended up struggling with obesity and diabetes for the rest of their life. And they found that they actually look like it somehow from as far close as they can tell. They said because their mother was experiencing famine-like conditions, like when the baby was um, forming, Uh uh, certain genes switched either on or off to give you a very low metabolism to do well in famine-like conditions. And then when the diet went back to normal... You just you're just having way too much. <laughs> you're ballooning out because your your metabolism's so low. You're struggling with diabetes, and they actually found that that's that's not necessarily something that they they inherited it from parents who had a low metabolism. It's like there were genes that could actually switch on and off based on what the mother's body was able to detect the environment was like. And they're finding a very similar thing with these finches that like if a mother finch is eating a bunch of big seeds, there's actually <laughs> like genes that will up the beak shape a bit mm-hmm. that switch on in the uh 
in the baby finch so that it actually has a larger beak. And so they're, they're finding that now, uh, as like people build, build and stuff and, uh, on the Galapagos islands, their figures like these beak shapes are actually changing way faster Hmm. than even natural selection should allow for. And at least the, at least the the predominant theory is that like, no, it's like there's, this is something that's already pre-programmed into the finch genome which is a problem for like the evolutionist for the for the same reason i said before it's like they're uh like I said so this this genome it's like a computer code that's able to actually detect environmental input uh and then even change offspring's output somewhat for what the beak shapes in and so it's like if you have a code you need a coder right yeah yeah, well, that's uh, that. That is quite extraordinary. That the 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 very uh, the very facts that Darwin was looking at that seemed to suggest that there was some kind of uh, sort of dumb process involved. Basically, that there was something that was that was enabling these the uh, like if a bird survives, it's because it had some inherent ability to survive that and that so it's going to perpetuate itself in a in a way that the bird that doesn't have that specific thing does not uh you you actually see that there is something this high level engineering behind what's making it possible for all of these birds to exist under different conditions depending on uh what their environment is giving them right and it really bolsters <laughs> a, a very old uh, three and a half thousand year idea uh, written by Moses in the book of Genesis that kind reproduces after kind in that like there are <laughs> it looks like there are genes that can switch on and off that will modify a shimp's uh, 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 finch's beak shape. Uh, there's also under certain circumstances like maybe even environmental factors do affect what genes get passed on to the next generation and what genes don't but the genes have to exist in the first place so it's like if you were to study all the finches in all the world and like catalog every gene you'd see the limits of what genes <laughs> of, of what the biological variation could be yeah. but it's like you're, you're never going to get a no matter how many millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of generations, you're never going to get a finch with gills because they've, they've studied the finch genome pretty closely. And there's a, a lot of different genes for beaks, but there's just like no one wrote that code into the finch genome. Right. You you have to cross to a completely different kind of animal. Yeah. And so there, there can be some uh, uh, variation within species. Um. And, and I mean, it's, there's, it's an ongoing study as to exactly how those genes are passed on to different generations. But eventually you do come up to a hard limit of like what, what genes were encoded in, yeah. in this species genome. That's very interesting. I, you know, I, uh, with, well, I'll be talking later on the program about just truth and how uh how much you have to cling to truth or else it's going to be attacked it's going to be cast down and it seems like one trend that you see so much today is that if there's a false statement 
that is passed off as truth, if it's if it's passed off long enough, then when it's exposed as a lie, then the the story basically it's well it's too late. This is just the way that we're doing it, and you know why are you making such a big deal out of something that's old news that type of thing? And it seems like there are there are certain uh, assumptions that kind of formed the foundation of basically creation without a creator that have retained remarkable tenacity in light of uh, the fundamentals being exposed as being inaccurate. Right. I actually read a pretty interesting article, I think a year ago about how like maybe seven years after Darwin um, wrote the origin of species, Gregor Mendel did a series of ground baking pea plant experiments about dominant and recessive genes and said this that if like if people were they said if people were looking at this debate with an honest mind like Gregor Mendel's experiment should have completely demolished Darwin's theory seven years after it got started hmm. well it's very interesting uh, information we appreciate you bringing that to us where would you send people who uh, who wanted to learn more about this uh, I've actually got two uh, articles that we can put in the show notes. One is called Was Charles Darwin Rational? Uh, and the other is called Did God Create Evolution? Uh, the first one is actually more like a biography of Charles Darwin, just kind of <laughs> uh, illustrating some of the personal struggles he had with some of the false doctrines of the Anglican Church when he was putting together the theory of evolution that kind of revealed that he had uh, a lot of bias in his thinking when he was formulating this theory and, and it wasn't just an exercise and rational may the best facts win science but that second one um did god create evolution really kind of debunks the theory of theistic evolution using genetic um using genetic principles like we've been talking about today uh and really highlights that like god created uh kind to reproduce after kind now, all those 15 varieties of finches on the Galapagos we can, we've been talking about uh, can interbreed with each other. They often don't. They're probably more like races of finch rather than species of finch. But they all would be something you call the finch kind. God created finches to reproduce after the finch kind, dogs to reproduce after the dog kind, uh, monkeys to reproduce after monkey kind, and then, and then humans even after the god kind. Uh, and so that will uh, we'll go through those principles in a little more detail than we had time for today all right marvelous we've been talking with trumpet writer andrew miller about epigenetics and how this undermines some of the fundamental assumptions of evolutionary theory he's he's uh, working on an article about this as well for the trumpet.com uh, you can watch for that as well as those two articles that he mentioned we'll link to in the show notes was charles darwin rational and did god create evolution thanks so much andrew all right thanks for having me is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. How much do you value truth? 33 years ago today, the Trumpet's editor-in-chief put everything on the line for the sake of the truth. 
He was a minister of the Worldwide Church of God under Herbert W. Armstrong. But after Mr. Armstrong died in 1986, the men who took over changed the doctrines of the church, and then they attacked those who held fast what they had proven to be true. Gerald Flurry clung to the truth, and 33 years ago today, he was fired for doing so. That courageous act of devotion to the truth is what started this organization. You wish there were more Americans willing to take such a stand for truth today. There are astonishingly few. We're in a time when truth is being cast to the ground, when people are being bullied and silenced for speaking facts, for speaking truth, and most people are just going along with it. I want to read an excerpt from an article by Jeffrey Tucker at the Epoch Times from yesterday that captures some of what we're dealing with today. He talks about the Twitter papers that were revealed last Friday exposing the collusion between the government, the Democrats, the intelligence officials, and Twitter, this enormously popular and powerful social media platform to suppress information about the Hunter Biden laptop that had a direct role in handing the 2020 election to Joe Biden. This is what Mr. Tucker writes. While the Hunter Biden laptop story is a politically charged issue, it only scratches the surface of the lies we've been fed for nearly three years, most having to do with COVID, the great issue of the day. Public health agencies pumped out vast propaganda and developed reliable relationships with mainstream media to back it all. You picked the subject. It was all gibberish. The idea that everyone was equally vulnerable was the core lie or that we didn't know enough about the virus early on to embark on a rational policy path. There were early claims that the virus lives on surfaces and that school and business closures were going to make the problem go away. Then we were told that masks will prevent us from getting sick. Claims that never had any scientific backing. Just this weekend, I received a note from the actual inventor of the N95 mask who told me that it was a preposterous claim from the beginning that no porous masks could stop a virus any more than a chain link fence can block sand particles. It doesn't take high-end science to figure this out. So public health agencies were lying all along. The lies about the vaccines were among the most egregious. They said repeatedly and often that the key to not getting sick was to get vaccinated and to do so would also stop transmission, even though not even the manufacturers made such claims. When people resisted because they didn't trust the vaccine, vaccines and more people realized that they were not needed, the mandates came and forcibly injected billions of people the world over. And now we see that the risks of adverse effects were far greater than anyone admitted. And he goes on in this article just talking about all of these lies and all of them that were practically universally pushed by the major media, by Democrats, and even by so many Republicans and so many who were ostensibly conservative, and they all worked together to push these deceits and lies and also to silence and punish the truth, those who spoke the truth. Now, this really is stunningly similar to what happened within the Church of God after Herbert W. Armstrong died. 
Gerald Fleury wrote a book called Malachi's Message, exposing the truth of what was happening and how the church's leaders were casting truth to the ground. This is the book that started the Philadelphia Church of God, and it is a call to action to hold fast the truth, to love the truth, to highly value the truth and defend the truth. It raises the flag and encourages us to always love and remember the truth. And it shows the terrible dangers that result when you compromise with the truth. A lot of this book is built around uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 of that chapter says, let no man deceive you by any means. This is a warning against deceit for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So this is talking about a falling away from the truth. And it says this falling away came first. This people, the people allowed this to happen. And they, then this man of sin came along and did tremendous damage. But he could only do what he did because the people allowed it. And there were ministers there who, who should have been faithful to God, who just allowed this to happen because they fell away from God. In America today, these radicals could never get away with what they're doing if the people valued truth. Verse 10 in 2 Thessalonians 2 says that a satanic force would come along. It says, with all deceivable of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth. So they, these people had the truth, but they didn't love it. They didn't love the truth. And so when these leaders came along and they started tampering with it and changing it and, and saying, well, this is the way it is from now on, people didn't object. God was testing his people to see whether they loved the truth or not by allowing the church to go completely off track. God wants to know if we love the truth. In Malachi's message, Mr. Fleury writes, the noble elect have fallen in love with God's truth. How about you? How much do you love truth? If you love it, if you love God's truth, then you're going to enjoy studying it and digging into it and learning its doctrines. In Revelation 3, God condemns the people in this era of the church, the Laodicean era, because they are lukewarm. And when you see the wreckage in that church, you realize lukewarm doesn't cut it with God. We have to continually push ourselves to be hot, to be excited about the truth, to love the truth. If we get casual about it, then that love is going to wax cold and then we're going to lose the truth. It opens us up to attack from Satan. Here's a quote from Malachi's message. Look at the history of God's church eras. Their primary problems were, one, losing their first love, two, becoming immoral and compromising with the world. At the same time, they, three, compromised with what the church taught in the past, and then some also, four, lacked the will to warn the world. That is why the gospel and the warning that accompanies it was not preached around the world until Mr. Armstrong came on the scene. There's a lot jammed into that, that paragraph, but there's 
there's a lot that's worth studying and thinking about in what he said there. But what it comes down to is there are so many things within our human nature that prevent us from fighting for the truth. In verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the instructions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Stand fast and hold those instructions. Hold fast. The the Revised Standard says stand firm. Look at America today, at what happens when people don't hold fast past instruction. You know, They forget our history. They forget. They can be convinced of egregious lies. They're easily misled, and and they buy into these ridiculous deceits. Malachi's message says, if we fail to cling to our past instructions, we can't stand firm. And then note this. He says, it is precious knowledge God has given us to withstand Satan's attack. With this knowledge, we are God's very elect who cannot be deceived. Without this knowledge, we can't avoid being deceived. Either we hang on to what we learned or we lose our eternal life. That's what's on the line for God's called out people. The prophet Malachi had a message specifically for the ministry of God's church. He says in Malachi 2 and verse 7, the priest should keep knowledge or watch, guard, fasten with nails the knowledge that we've been given. Now, watching and guarding and fastening the truth with nails, that's really locking it down. But if you don't do that, you can easily go astray and not even realize it. This is happening on a mass scale in America today, even with just the founding principles of this nation with the tenets of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that protect our freedom. People aren't watching them. They're not guarding those things. They're not fastening those with nails. And, boy, we are losing them in a hurry. It's a a remarkable parallel situation. What, What happens spiritually within the Church of God and what's happening physically within the nation of Israel, the, the, the lead nation, and really all of the nations of Israel, Britain, other nations. In Malachi 3 and verse 16, you read this, Then they that feared the eternal, that's important, those that feared the eternal spoke often one to another, and the eternal hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. A book of remembrance. Mr. Flory writes in Malachi's message, the Laodiceans, God's lukewarm people, failed to escape because they forget. And they turn to a lukewarm message. God remembers the Philadelphian group because they remembered him. Remember what we were taught, he writes. Without that precious God-inspired knowledge, Satan will deceive us. Now, this is one thing that Mr. Fleury brings out uh, in America Under Attack in his his new book, that we are not just fighting against misguided men. There is a very evil, extremely capable and intelligent and shrewd spirit being, Satan the devil, who is behind all of these destructive activities. And he's very good at intimidating. He's very skilled at pushing people into succumbing to cowardice and fear. 
That's really the only way that he can succeed at what he's doing. In, in the, the worldwide church of God, how far would that falling away have progressed had the ministers stood up for what was right? Uh, there were a lot of them who disagreed with what was going on, but they didn't do anything about it. Here's what Mr. Fleury wrote in Malachi's message. It's totally inexcusable. Every Laodicean minister ought to see what is happening and act accordingly. You must act. That's what faith is all about. I just wish that the leaders in America would take that message to heart. They ought to see what's happening and act accordingly. In Malachi 1 and verse 10, the New American Standard Bible says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates. You know, if only someone would stand up and do something about these injustices. Malachi's message says, God is pleading with his temple servants, the ministers, to take a stand. It's a strong plea from God to stop what is happening. Mr. Fleury referenced the story in the gospels about jesus christ seeing the money changers in the temple of god and and just going right in there and turning the tables over and chasing them out of there he writes loyal ministers must stand and fight against spiritual pollution no matter the consequences again this is exactly the message that so many of our leaders in america and britain and other nations need to hear on the physical level. They are allowing themselves to be bullied by this satanic spirit of deception and destruction. You know, they, they think they, they can work together with these radicals. They can negotiate with them. They can appease them somehow or other. They want to show themselves as reasonable. Well, we can talk this out. And that is just a deadly delusion. Mr. Fleury writes, fellow ministers of Jesus Christ. Just think about the the spirit of what he is saying. This, This man who took a stand and who started a new organization with God's backing, obviously. He just would not stand for what those men were doing. He said, fellow ministers of Jesus Christ, God's people desperately need an example to follow. God has helped me with many miracles since I was disfellowshipped. He will do the same for you. All we have to do is trust him. Please step out on faith. We ministers must let Malachi move and stir us to a greater effort. God needs loyal ministers now as never before. What a bold message. What an inspiring, courageous message. And how shameful that really it was only a very tiny few ministers who heeded that. Most of them failed. We need strong spiritual courage, like the courage that was there right at the foundation of of this organization. The need for spiritual courage has never been greater. To stand up and speak the truth when lies are being propagated. It takes courage to expose deceit. It takes courage to confront problems. It takes courage to support the work of God. Courage to put God's message out there even when it's unpopular. Prophecy shows God's people are going to have to exercise strong spiritual courage to stand up to persecution that that is coming. 
even in our families, it takes courage to confront a problem in your children, in your marriage, to tackle something that poses a danger, to root that out. That takes courage. Here's a classic passage from Malachi's message. Mr. Fleury wrote, In the Laodicean churches, spiritual courage may be the greatest need. Without it, the other virtues are of little value. God's people can't cower in fear and still grow in God's love. God says the righteous are bold as a lion, Proverbs 28 and verse 1. The church is commanded to warn this world. The pastor general of the WCG who succeeded Mr. Armstrong has said that the world was in a Philadelphian stage when Mr. Armstrong was alive. Now he said the world is in a Laodicean stage. Therefore, the church can't warn the world as Mr. Armstrong did because people just won't accept the message, he said. How would the Apostle Paul respond to such a strategy? He was cursed, beaten, stoned, and left for dead and finally beheaded for preaching the same message Mr. Armstrong later preached, the message must be preached whether the people receive it or not. God says to warn them. Christ and all of God's messengers were brutally treated for preaching the gospel to a people who wouldn't accept God's warning message. This nation, America, has the greatest power ever of any nation on earth. It also lacks the will to use it. Leviticus 26 and verse 19. The WCG today has the greatest power to communicate God's truth that any church era has ever had, but it also lacks the will to use it. The leaders of the WCG have absorbed the spirit of this age. That is the disease of the Laodiceans. Today they lack the understanding and courage to deliver God's powerful message. It's a marvelous passage from Malachi's message exposing the dangers of human nature that just wants to avoid the difficult job of standing up for the truth. We have to fear God enough to conquer that tendency. Mr. Fleury wrote here, Paul said, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. He feared God. If we don't preach the truth that God reveals, we show a dangerous lack of godly fear, fearing men rather than God. Prophets speak out when they are told to prophesy not. If we fear God, we're not going to fear men. The fear of God gives us the spiritual courage we need. God gives us that courage. And on this anniversary of the PCG. Remember this history. Remember this lesson. As you see this terrible situation playing out across America, realize how crucial it is to be courageous, to stand for truth. It's time for today's Last Word. I want to talk about a wonderful quality of God. Isaiah 55 says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
And this is a way that God thinks that is truly beautiful. And it's something that we should aspire to, to try to think like God, to rise to his level. It's very different from the way we naturally think, but it is beautiful. It's practical. It's something you can work on regularly in your interactions with other people. And there's a lot in the Bible about this, about how God thinks this way and how we are to emulate him. Acts 10 records the episode where a Gentile named Cornelius came to believe the gospel. And God gave the apostle Peter a vision showing that he was actually calling this man. Now the Jews had a big problem with this. They thought God loved the Jews more than the Gentiles. But Peter explained to them, and you can read this in Acts 10 and verse 34, He said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. The New King James Version says, God shows no partiality. Peter came to understand God doesn't play favorites. He wants all people to repent and to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. All people are made in God's likeness. All people have the potential to develop the character of God and to enter the family of God. He continued in the Revised Standard in verse 35, it says, But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God plays no favorites. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you fear God and you do what is right, then God considers you acceptable. He's not impressed with someone's looks, with their dress, with their haircut, with their personality, how rich they are, how talented they are. God doesn't judge people by those standards. He's looking for people who fear him and do what is right. Now that is so different from the way that we tend to look at people. We naturally judge by appearance. We look at surface level things, really superficial things. We don't tend to judge people by their character. In fact, in a lot of cases, people judge someone worse for doing what is right. When you look at other people, how wide of a gap is there between the way you see them and the way God does? Here are a couple of more verses about this Romans 2:11 there is no respect of persons with God Deuteronomy 10 verses 17 to 18 I'll read this from a Bible paraphrase God your God is the God of all gods he doesn't play favorites takes no bribes makes sure orphans and widows are treated fairly takes loving care of foreigners by seeing that they get food and clothing he looks after the ones that others ignore And there are a lot of verses that say he doesn't show partiality in judgment. If you sin, it doesn't matter how well-connected you are. It doesn't matter if your dad's the president. He is going to judge you for that. Now, this is a wonderful quality of God. He judges everyone by a perfect standard, and he looks on the heart. He simply isn't distracted by so many of the things that we get hung up on and that can cloud our judgment. Who do you consider acceptable? Who do you choose to be close with? What makes someone acceptable in your sight? What are your priorities? Is it someone who fears God, 
and does what is right? Do you try to look on the heart? Do you try to see the character of the individual? Or do you overlook people? Or are you distracted by quirks? Are you drawn to people for superficial reasons? It's, it's very, very easy to do that. There's a wonderful section in Mr. Flurry's booklet, The Epistle of James, in chapter 3, about James chapter 2. And the, the title of the chapter is, Brethren, Show No Partiality. Here's what verse 1 of the Revised Standard reads. My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Mr. Flurry writes, sadly, this world is based on persons respecting persons. That partiality is the curse of mankind. It causes endless problems. People discriminate on the basis of wealth, privilege, sex, race, education, culture, talent, any number of things. I'm a good-looking person. They're ugly. I've got class. They have none. I don't like that person's race. This is our natural carnal way of thinking. And why do we do this? It's because our human nature wants to put ourselves above other people. We naturally want to feel superior to other people, especially those who are different from us. So we look for things to judge them for, to knock them down a peg. This, What naturally tends to happen among people is you get a pecking order, like chickens in a hen house. This is a remarkable thing about chickens. They create a social hierarchy where each bird pecks subordinate birds and submits to being pecked by dominant birds. But people do this. And we do it because of pride. The source of this tendency is pride. And it is a sin. It comes from Satan's influence. It comes from Satan's nature. It's very easy to fall into this trap viewing the people around us through our own flawed perceptions rather than trying to see them as God does. Mr. Fleury writes, those problems are a direct result of a failure to understand God's family. God says the problems of the world will never be solved until we learn about family. So this is very deep, but it's also very simple. We all need to evaluate ourselves. I would challenge you to evaluate yourself and how well your interactions with other people reflect this understanding. Mr. Flurry writes, we must set an example for this hate-filled, divided world. In understanding God, we should show people how to unify the whole world as one man with the mind of Christ. We must not forget our goal to bring the whole world into God's family. Now, you read this, this passage in James 2, and he gets very practical. He says, if a, if a man comes into your church, and he's wearing an expensive suit, and then you have a street person who's wearing rags who comes in right after him, and you say to the, the well-dressed man, look, you can sit over here, you can sit in the best seat in the house, and then you ignore the street person, or you say, you know, look, go to the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? That's basically what James says. He's warning us against judging by outward appearances. 
Here are a few more verses. Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. You shall not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 1.17 is very similar. You shall hear the small as well as the great. Proverbs 28 verse 21 says, To have respect of persons is not good. For, for a piece of bread, that man will transgress. In other words, once you start judging by those superficial things, or once you start respecting people, you're going to start making bad judgments over nothing, over a piece of bread. You'll, you'll be willing to take a bribe to favor that individual. Matthew Henry says about this verse, it is a fundamental error in the administration of justice to consider the parties concerned more than the merits of the cause, so as to favor one because he is a gentleman, a scholar, my countryman, my old acquaintance, has formerly done me a kindness, or may do me one, or is of my party and persuasion, and to bear hard on the other party, because he is a stranger, a poor man, has done me an ill turn, is or has been my rival, or is not of my mind, or has voted against me. Judgment is perverted when any consideration of this kind is admitted into the scale. Anything but pure right. Now this way of thinking is so unique to God and to the prescriptions of the Bible. You just don't see it in this world. As Mr. Fleury said, the world is based on persons respecting persons, and it's the curse of mankind. Just evaluate yourself. How differently do you treat different people? Are there some people that you fawn over and then others that you ignore? Do you hold on to little grudges over this person or say, I'm, well, I'm not going to be friendly to him? That's the way the whole world operates, and it's the curse of mankind. Mr. Flory writes, God's church must be different from the world. We must treat every person with the highest respect, not shutting anyone out of the family of God. Now, how well do you do with that? Treating every person with the highest respect. You have to get God's help to be able to do that. Our tendency is to be partial to shut some out, and we don't even think about it, or we might even feel perfectly justified in doing that. You know, we've got our reasons for treating this person that way. Mr. Flurry says, God's people must be an example to the world of showing no partiality and treating each member of Christ's body with honor. That way of life must begin within the church because God wants it to reach every corner of the world. This is the way... God thinks. This is the way God acts, and he wants all men to do so. This requires that we think unnaturally, because it's our human nature to be negative and critical of other people. We like to think that we're awesome, everyone else is flawed. Mr. Fleury wrote this in How to Be an Overcomer. Self-righteousness makes you a person without much compassion because you just can't understand why people have so many faults. If you don't look deep down and see your own problems, you're going to be very critical of other people. You'll be a difficult person to get close to because who wants to be put down all the time? 
God's love doesn't focus on people's flaws. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, God's love thinks no evil. It allows for people's mistakes. It wants to think well of others. It forgives others. It believes all things. It believes the best about other people. It bears all things, covering faults rather than gossiping about them. And it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in people's virtues. It's pleased when they do well. Mr. Flurry wrote, here is a principle I hope you never forget. True righteousness never looks down on others. No matter who it is or how dirty the sinner is, true righteousness never looks down on the person. It hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Going on in James 2, verse 5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? You know, as far as the world is concerned, the people that God chooses are the poor. But God judges so differently than man does. And again, we, we have to learn to see people as God does. The James booklet talks about how Laodiceans fell into these problems, this carnal thinking and judging and showing partiality and favoritism. He writes, countless problems infected the church because the Laodiceans did not internalize the family lesson. The people started to become partial. I like this person. I don't like that person. God thunders to them, don't you realize you're breaking the law of love? God's people above all should be cultivating and demonstrating God's family love. Look at Jesus Christ's example. He regularly ate with publicans and sinners. He was meek and lowly. He didn't consider himself, quote, too good to associate with people that the lofty people around him considered beneath them. And of course, he shed his blood for all men. And when he was hanging there on the stake, he prayed for his persecutors. Now, that is a way of thinking that is so much higher than our thoughts. Verse 8 of James 2 says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Now, that is a royal law. That is the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the standard that we need to be aiming for every day. And then verse 9 says, But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. This really is a sin. We can't afford to justify it. We can't think it's no big deal. We have to see it as God does. And it goes on to say in this passage, in God's eyes, respecting persons is the same as murder. Mr. Fleury writes, you hate your brother when you are a respecter of persons, and that makes you guilty of murder. And he references Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. James says, you can't pick and choose in these things. You can't you know, keep one little section of the law and then ignore other sections. The God who said, don't commit adultery is the same God who said, you shall not murder. And if you don't commit adultery, but you go ahead and murder, your adherence to the law against 
adultery isn't going to cancel out you murdering someone. You are a murderer. 1 John 3.15 says, Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. So we really have to purge out anything like hatred in our hearts if we are to keep the royal law. Now the next chapter in James James 3 goes on to talk about the importance of controlling your tongue. It says the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Mr. Fleury writes, why is it so important that we learn to tame our tongues? Because we are preparing to teach every person who has ever lived. We need the mind of Christ to direct everything we say. Jesus Christ continually spoke uplifting words while he was here on earth. With his mind in us, we can do the same. Each of us must learn to exercise wisdom in this area. We must learn to say things that will encourage people and lift them up. When we fail to do that, we can easily beat people down. What, what is your speech toward other people like? You read this passage in James, and, and it's basically telling us we've got to examine ourselves, even the thoughts of our heart, and get rid of negative feelings toward other people. Again, that's the way the world works. But verse 17 says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. There are seven qualities there, and, and you can read about them in that booklet that Gerald Flurry wrote about James. He, I'll just give you a, a couple of statements here. He says, If we speak words of wisdom, we bring joy and encouragement. Our tongue produces spiritual honey. God's wisdom is peaceable, which means that it makes peace with others, especially within the family. It is gentle, meaning not looking down on others. It is easy to be entreated, happy to give in if the other person is right. God's wisdom is also without partiality. It is not swayed by self-interest, worldly honor, or fear of man. It shows no favoritism. That is the wisdom from above. That is the way God thinks. And we really do need to learn to think like God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're trying to rise to his level and learn learn to think like him in this specific way. Show no partiality. And that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guest, Andrew Miller. Thanks to Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Andrew Carnegie. People who are unable to motivate themselves must be content with mediocrity. 
no matter how impressive their other talents. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.